Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Before I introduce my guest for this episode, I want to share some information about CoEnterprises, my company. It serves income-producing real estate market participants through four distinct platforms. First, I advise early-stage real estate companies on securing project financing and on forming and executing operating and financial strategy. My current clients include Brick Lane, a multifamily investment and development firm who began in D.C. and has expanded to the Southeast U.S. with many acquisitions and projects, and One Circle Co., an early-stage multifamily developer and investor in Boston who is nearing their first development project. Two, career counseling for early and mid-career real estate professionals with a program approach, including two one-hour sessions and follow-up six-months progress reports. My clients range from recent college graduates to mid-career executives who are contemplating change. And three, of course, this podcast, sharing knowledge and insights of market leaders. I want to give a special shout out to my associate on this effort, Colin Madden, who provides ProScript perspective and marketing assistance to produce the podcast. And finally, for deriving from the podcast listener base and my experience as a ULI mentor, Colin and I initiated the iconic journey in CRE, a community of young professionals from 22 to 40 years old who participate and contribute to online and live meetings, property tours, mastermind groups, book readings, and career resources. In summary, CoEnterprise's mission is to motivate and guide high-achieving individuals and young companies to get the results they want, and in doing so, to elevate the D.C. area real estate community. To learn more, click on my website, coenterprises.com, or reach out to me at john at coenterprises.com to learn about any of these services. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining me for episode 61 of Icons of D.C. Area Real Estate. I'm so pleased to introduce my guest today, John Belchicchio who is the Deputy Mayor of Planning and Economic Development of the District of Columbia. John has been serving under current Mayor Mariel Bowser now for several years since her last election in this role. Prior to that, he was Chief of Staff to Mayor Bowser. The DEMPED, as his position is called, his department is called, has three primary responsibilities, affordable housing, creating jobs, and generating tax revenues. He talks about how he is implementing policies to achieve all those goals. Mayor Bowser has ambitious housing goals, which he talks about, and uh, his departments are business development and real estate are his main focus, and that's why I wanted to talk to him. He grew up in New Jersey, And politics was always a passion in his family. His father was an educator and was politically involved. 
he came to Washington to go to college at Catholic University. And after that, he got uh, enamored with politics here locally, he studied political science college. So he got involved in, in campaigning and policy advocacy, primarily at the local level initially. And he joined Adrian Fenty's campaign early on to become mayor of the city while he was a council member. And he helped the mayor, Mayor Fenty, be elected, had a senior advisor role in the Fenty administration, and stayed with the Mayor Fenty after he left office and helped him a bit. He then segued to working with Barack Obama's campaign and then was connected into a PR job in New York, going back to his roots. And then he came down back to work with Mayor Bowser on her campaign and then joined her administration. He talks a little bit about his objectives and some of the things that have happened since the pandemic began. He talks about some of his initiatives called the the Bridge Fund, the request for information about converting office into residential uses in the city, GSA, return to the office. We talk about DC statehood, the net zero energy goals of the city, and this innovation district that they're bringing in. So John has several initiatives going on. And we talk about several of them and, the, and his belief about the impact of the, them into the city and its future. So without further ado, here is my wide-ranging conversation with John Belchicchio. So John, welcome. Thank you for joining me on Icons of DC Area Real Estate. I appreciate it. Well, thanks so much for having me. Great. So at a high level, explain your role as Deputy Mayor for the Economic Development and how you've you have your own perspective on in that role. Sure. So it's actually crafted by my predecessor, Brian Kenner, but there are three jobs within the Deputy Mayor for Planning and Economic Development Office. And that really includes making sure that we continue to build affordable housing, that we continue to create jobs in the District of Columbia, and that we continue to generate tax revenue. So if you could do those three things, housing, jobs, and tax revenue, which are all pretty easy. That's a joke, John. You're supposed to laugh at that one. Uh, (laughs) And you'll see that, then you'll see, you know, real progress in the District of Columbia. So it's a really kind of a broad uh, portfolio of projects, but we're organized uh, in two major units. Our uh, business development unit, which does a lot of the business attraction and employer attraction and retention. Uh, and then our real estate division, which does not just our own real estate projects, so taking underutilized district assets uh, and getting them back to productive, but also uh, does some development financing as well, in particular work on like projects that are well known to your listeners, projects like Union Market or Gallery Place, where we've used tools like tax increment financing. So it's a broad portfolio, but it keeps it interesting every day. Awesome. So looking at your predecessor's accomplishments in this role, how have you attempted to build on their successes and overcome their challenges? Absolutely. So one of the things that Mayor Bowser set out to do was really to make uh, a mark on affordable housing districts. So uh, first year in office in 2015, and actually a campaign promise in the campaign of 2014, was to really set the bar at $100 million each year that we would invest into the Housing Production Trust Fund. Uh, So Brian Kenner, who was here before, made sure that the district was really focused in on affordable housing and that we needed to make sure that that $100 million investment 
that the mayor was making each year really was able to get out the door, right? So the, the notion was, would we actually have a pipeline of projects to, to actually utilize all that? And we have. So what we've done to build on that was what Mayor Bowser put out in 2019, which is our housing equity report. That housing equity report set a goal of 36,000 new homes by 2025. And it also set targets by neighborhood for affordable housing goals. So I took over the helm of DEMPED in July of 2019. So I've been working to implement that vision that the mayor set out and that foundation that Brian Kenner set for us in the first term. That's great. Before going too much more deeply into policy and goals, let's talk about your origins and education, John. So I grew up in Jersey City, New Jersey, which is right outside okay. Uh, Manhattan, right across the river. I actually came to DC uh, in 1997, went to okay. Catholic University, and that's what brought me to uh, Washington, DC. But growing up in Jersey City was uh, you know, a great experience, a very sort of blue collar town. Many know of the sort of renaissance that Jersey City has been under yes. for the last 20 years or so. I like to tell folks that's not the part of Jersey City I grew up in, a uh, very blue collar <laughs> neighborhood that I grew up in and remains uh, the same today. My parents were both public educators and uh, instilled within me a work ethic. My dad was involved in local politics and you know inspired me to go on to Catholic University to actually study politics with a focus on urban government. And so mm -hmm. I uh, studied under Dr. John Krukowski, uh, who taught me all the teachings of urbanists like Gino Baroni and others who talked about a philosophy that showed that the way that we help uh, those who are uh, most in need is to make them more part of our economic prosperity uh, and to do it in mixed income communities. And so that model is something that kind of inspired me to do this work. And so I'm really proud uh, that we've got a mayor that's made us the first jurisdiction in the country to have affordable housing goals by neighborhood. Well, that actually probably stems out of those teachings from some of the great ones who came before us, like uh, Gino Baroni. So politics has interesting aspects to it. <laughs> I studied political science when I was in college as well. I learned something I didn't want to do in life. Uh, because of some of the historic power grabs that politicians typically have. So I'm just curious what drove, what, what internalized politics to you? Was it your father's inspiration or what was it about it that intrigued you? Oh, no, definitely my dad, his influence and his in politics really set me off on the path that I'm on. You know, it's funny, I was, when we were, when I was growing up, my brothers and I would volunteer on campaigns. Some point on campaigns, we'd make a few extra bucks as well. And, you know, we'd do mm -hmm. things like going door to door and talking to my brother asked me, so you're going to college and you're going to study politics. Well, why would you study a hobby? And to me, it was really about an opportunity to actually, you know, do something that I enjoyed, which was talking to neighbors about, sure. you know, the future of of the city or the state or the country. And then really yep. just having the chance to actually figure out who was going to be in power and how they would use that to actually empower people. So I've had the great fortune of actually working for people that I really believe in, like Mayor Bowser, and really proud of their record of empowering people. So you left Catholic, and then what was your first foray into? into yeah, so, yeah, so my first foray was at a lobbying shop, a state-level lobbying shop. 
Uh, and I did research. I was on Lexus Nexus all day and knew that that wasn't for me. Ultimately, I thought I was going to want to be a lobbyist when I grew up. And, and then I realized that I wanted to take a crack at campaigns again. Uh, so I did that uh, uh-huh. for a little bit. And I did some campaigns around the country, but ultimately I knew I wanted to be here in Washington, D.C. and got connected with Adrian Fenty. Adrian Fenty at the time was a council member uh, who was known as a kind of young up-and-comer. What I liked about working in, and I had worked on you know, a presidential campaign, I'd worked on congressional races, but what I liked about district politics was a real proximity to those who are making the decisions. And so I really uh, got a chance to be close to the policy making back when I worked with Councilmember Fenty uh, and then Mayor Fenty. And I was really kind of one of his first uh, hires for his run for mayor and then served as a senior advisor for him when he was in office. And what I liked about that was the scope of what I did was really broad, but I got uh, really close to the decision-making and kind of understanding all the stakeholders that had to be engaged in order to bring a decision to fruition. How did you meet Adrian? So just like everything in Washington, through a friend who said, hey, I know a guy who's you know trying to do politics and government in D.C., you're somebody who's up and coming. And so we sort of had a, a matchmaker and he introduced us. Adrian was really like, you know, trusted the person who introduced us and said, you know, if this is what you think we have to do to get things started, let's give John a shot. And from there, I worked with him pretty much straight through for about eight years, both in his time running for office and even after he left office as well. Mm-hmm. So then you you shifted into the into the PR biz for a bit. Is yeah. Right? So, so after Mayor Fenty left office, stayed with him for a little bit as he sort of set up all of his private sector work. So his consulting firm, he started talking to some folks about, you know, some boards and things like that. So it was really interesting kind of to understand the business side of, you know, of what he was doing. Uh, so that's what I did for a little bit after uh, he left office. Then I actually went to work on Barack Obama's re-election. So I did that in 2012. And then after that, went to work in PR. And this is probably goes back to that, you know, that first job out of uh, college where I thought I was going to be in the private sector. And I liked the work that I was doing. I liked the people I was working with. But the thing I learned about consulting is you give uh, your clients your best advice. They do whatever they want. And then you have to be there whether it works out well or not. And a lot of times it doesn't work out well uh, because they didn't follow your advice. So it was a really <laughs> interesting experience. And I, I say that, you know, in jest, because again, got to work with some great folks. But And you I went back to New York too. Yeah, exactly. Right? Got to be close to family for a bit again. But what I really kind of learned from that is that I really liked being closer to the impact. The folks that I was working with were doing, you know, some great things, some really interesting projects, but I liked being closer to the impact. And I actually volunteered uh, and took a leave from my PR firm to come back to, I, you know, obviously knew Muriel Bowser. She was a council member, knew her because her mentor was Adrian Fenty. So when she was running for mayor, I just volunteered on her campaign. And when she won, you know, I took a leave of absence uh, from a PR firm, told them I'd be back in a couple months after I ran her transition. And I promise you, I didn't uh, intend 
to do a search for her chief of staff, like Dick Cheney in his vice presidential search where he selected himself. But it just came to be. And the mayor elect then put her trust in me to be chief of staff. And so I ultimately had to leave the PR firm and move back to Washington, D.C., which I kind of wanted to do anyway, because there's just something special about D.C. And so I was proud to start in January of 2015 as her chief of staff. And then your role evolved after that to where yeah, you're so, doing now? Yeah. So with Chief of Staff, I mean, a lot of the work is really finding the people to help support the mayor. I always say that the mayor sets the vision and then the folks like the Chief of Staff and uh, her direct reports really have uh, the job of figuring out the people policies and processes to carry out her vision. Uh, so as Chief of Staff, that's uh, what I do and, you know, I really kind of was attracted to Demphead during the first term, really to be a sounding board for them. A lot of the decisions they make are political and political, not in the electoral sense, but political in the sense that there's a lot of diverse stakeholders in everything Demphead does. And so how do you, you know, make sure you're making um, decisions that the mayor would uh, want you to make, but also that really impact the most people. And a lot of times there's a lot of headwinds when we're making decisions that are obviously for and in the best interest uh, of residents, but we've got to sort of play the long game to do those three things that I talked about, housing, jobs, and uh, tax revenue. And, you know, those aren't necessarily easy decisions. So as chief of staff, I kind of took kind of, it was almost kind of like a, an advisor to Demped and when they had a tough decision to make, I, I helped to be a sounding board for them. And sometimes when they were having a tough conversation with a third party, I'd come in and help them with that tough conversation so that they knew that Demphead had the mayor's support and that the mayor thought that conversation was a priority. So that's how I really got uh, uh, involved with this economic development portfolio. There are other divisions within obviously within the executive branch of the district. Were you just attracted to that group? Just economic development interested you more than other aspects of, of the executive role? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of ways that, you know, all of our agencies shape the future of the city, but Demphead is unique. I mean, the mayor actually says uh, it's the most fun job in government. I say to her, I think the mayor might be, she says, no, Demphead, you actually get to think about kind of the future of the city right? And what kind of future we want to become. Literally, we have the office planning in our cluster. And right. so and so, I think that's what attracted me to kind of the work that Demped was doing. And also, you know, I don't necessarily have business training, but I do know that there are decisions that can impact outcomes for our residents, big decisions, and that are made in Demped. And so that's what attracted to attracted me to it more than anything. We talked about this briefly up front, but talk high level about your initial agenda for your current role and what has changed since being in office, including the impact of the pandemic over the last couple of years. Yeah. So, you know, like I said, we talked a little bit about sort of 2019 and that real doubling down on the mayor wanting to attack housing affordability. And, you know, I thought that the next four years, you know, when we were sitting in 2019 would be you know, just how we made progress on her housing goals and how we implemented them across the district. The pandemic really has changed it in that, one, we still need to 
make progress on those housing goals. And we are really proud of the team that they've stayed focused on that overarching goal. But, you know, we lost a tremendous number of jobs in the district. We started the pandemic with about 800,000 jobs and we lost nearly 80,000. So 10% of our jobs just vanished in a matter of really, I was going to say months. That's not fair. Weeks. That's not fair. It's really <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I teased the team that, you know, the mayor had been doing some great work at, you know, creating jobs and, and actually getting more DC residents employed. Our unemployment rate actually was, you know, heading towards record lows. And, and in Ward 7 and 8, where it had been stubbornly in double digits, in Ward 7, we got it below uh, double digits. And in Ward 8, we had it heading that way. And the pandemic shook that all up. And so, you know, I, I was saying I tease the team. I tease the team because our job is to create jobs. And here we are having to dig out. We've got the furthest to go because in order for us to actually have a net positive impact, we have a lot of jobs to create. And so, you know, I, I said everything that we did in the first term, we've got to figure out how to, you know, double down on it as well. So I think what it though has created is a bit of an opportunity. You know, our council is known for its progressive ideals. And what we see, though, is that there's an appetite to invest in small businesses because they employ D.C. residents. We've been trying to also tell them that, you know, larger businesses are important to invest in as well because they employ D.C. residents as well and create indirect jobs that support D.C. residents. So the opportunity is that we actually can make some really key investments in businesses uh, large and small, because it's really shown uh, our council and other stakeholders that that it's important to to invest in employers. So you pivoting off that point, uh, you just issued a re- request for information to businesses in the district in the, in the CBD primarily, I think maybe the East End as well. What are you trying to accomplish with that and? Is that to help you kind of provide services to private the private sector to help them recover from the from the pandemic and the issues that from that and you know stimulate employment downtown? Yeah, I mean the really the uh, area that's been hit hardest in the district is the downtown. So I talked about the eight hundred thousand jobs uh, in the district pre pandemic. About one hundred ninety seven thousand of those jobs were federal government employees. And if you think about the federal government employees who work in the District of Columbia, they are they tend to be the they tend to be office workers, right? We don't have a lot of frontline federal government workers, so office workers. So really, our office market has been shook by uh, telework posture. And so you know now that we're entering year three or calendar year three of the pandemic and its impacts. We really see that it's starting to really interrupt the lease cycle, the 10-year lease cycle that office users enjoy. And people are starting to rethink how they use office space. And that's not just a DC thing, obviously. It's a national and probably international trend. And so we put out a request for information to check in with property owners to see what it would take in order for us to create housing in downtown. So it's literally called the housing in downtown request for information, HID RFI. And what we see is uh, a real, and where we focused it, I should say, is uh, really on central Washington, which is one of our 10 planning areas and includes the central business district. And there's over 100 million square feet of office 
in that area. And, you know, with our office vacancy rate, you know, ping-ponging, but really, I say ping-pong, but really just on an upward trajectory, you know, cresting seven, uh, 16%, going towards 17%, and even could go higher before this all settles, is how do we take some of that office space, especially the Class B and Class C, and turn it into uh, residential? I don't say convert, because that's kind of a loaded, uh, loaded word, thinking that you're just going to take the structure you have and turn it into housing. It's not entirely feasible. But how do you actually take those uh, properties and turn them into housing? So we got some good feedback on the request for information. And we also have been working to look around open source data to find other opportunities for housing. The important thing about doing this is, you know, it's not just about creating more units of housing and helping us on that goal, but also inserting some vibrancy to downtown. So right now in the central business district, 92% of the property use is is office. So 92%. So that means that there's uh, not much vibrancy if the offices aren't uh, utilized. And so with this request for information, we want to figure out how to create more units of housing, capture some of that as affordable, and then two, just really makes more uh, vibrant or make central Washington a little more vibrant. Is there any stimulus that the government's thinking about to help retailers as well? Not just, you know, converting to residential, but I mean, so many restaurants have closed and I I don't know what the statistics are, but I'm guessing that less than half have reopened because there really isn't a customer base downtown to to search. So I guess until people come back into the city physically, it's going to be hard to, you know, you make an investment. It may not be worth the investment to, that, that you get until you get the people back. So uh, curious how you're thinking about stimulating that. And the other side of it is entertainment. I mean, are there things you can do to stimulate people coming back, not necessarily from a commerce standpoint, but also in the tourism side, because that's a big driver of, of, of economic development for the city. Yeah, no, uh, I'm smiling because there's a couple of good questions in there. On on the sort of the retail front, we've actually, and this is an area where I think that the council has been a great partner for us in that we set up what the mayor called the bridge fund. So in um, uh, the end of 2020, she set up the bridge fund because we think of our recovery in a couple stages. So it's a relief, a recovery, and then growth. And so relief, what we want to do is just to make sure like you said, John, that those businesses that are still standing, that they can continue to survive the the economic shock of the pandemic. And then recovery is where we start to gain back those jobs again, right? How do we get back to that 800,000 jobs? And then growth is, you know, the only way that a city survives is is it grows or it shrinks. And we want to be a city that is continually growing. And so we've actually uh, invested uh, $100 million into the bridge fund in order to support small businesses, especially retail businesses. And then the mayor was actually happy to see that the council put up another $40 million. So we're currently putting out that $40 million uh, of bridge fund support in order to uh, support those businesses so that they can recover. So we did the relief. Now we need them to recover and eventually to grow. And then we also have talked about this, you know, central business district and, and some other parts of the city as well, where we need to make investments because, yes, we have to do things like the housing in downtown RFI to find opportunities to change what's happening on sort of the uh, upper floors of a building uh, downtown. 
But we also need to make sure that we find a way to uh, support what's happening at the street uh, level. And so we've just did a, a round of grants, about $4 million for what we call open streets for the people. And this is a chance for our business improvement districts to really change the streetscape of the neighborhoods that they serve to make more outdoor space that people can enjoy. So as people come out of their office building, maybe they have a meeting outside, you know, in a parklet or a closed lane of traffic, or maybe we enhance some of the area that, you know, we have so many intersections that have diagonal streets in DC, creating sort of these small triangles. Maybe we close some of those streets like they did in DuPont Circle to create more outdoor space for people to meet or eat or otherwise. So we've got to think about, you know, if we had a blank canvas, downtown is that blank canvas, How do, what were all the elements that we would want to add to it? We probably want to add more housing. We probably want to add more space for people to gather outside. And then we want to support, like you said, you know, tourism and hospitality businesses to make sure uh, that they're there for visitors when they do come back, and we're confident that they will. So the federal government is a primary space user in the city, and much of their office space remains unoccupied during the pandemic. What is the situation with GSA's use of office space as people being in the city have a huge influence on ancillary services offered by shopkeepers, et cetera, and other service providers who are your taxpayers? Are you working with them to facilitate their return? Yeah, so we actually, and I've been with Mayor Bowser as we've gone directly to the White House to ask them to uh, really set the tone for a return to work. You know, the president has been clear that he wants us to build back better. Well, the best way to do that is to actually have people come back to the office. And almost, you know, in D.C. government, stepping back for a moment, in D.C. government, the mayor has brought us back to a modified schedule for policy workers, right? So folks who aren't frontline workers, about 40% of our team members are frontline workers and interact with the public uh, on a regular basis. So they always were working. And so it was important for the for us in leadership or in policy positions to come back in solidarity with 40% who had to work throughout the pandemic in delivering those essential services. So we did that. I think for the Biden administration, it's really important that if they want to signal that the uh, pandemic is now an endemic and that we need to get the economy back to where it was, and they've been doing a great job on that, then we have to get things back to the way they were, even in our office settings as well. And so we are under no impression that everybody's going to come back five days a week, but we do need to get people back more than they were. And we know that that'll support our businesses. So we have done some analysis and know that, you know, the worker who comes into the central business district each day spends about 20 to $40 a day on everything from getting food to a cup of coffee to going to the pharmacy. And that is a real benefit to the district, one for the jobs that it supports but then also for the, the tax revenue. So one of the things that we've kicked around is if the federal government isn't going to come back, if they're not going to go back to the offices, and we hope that they do, then what is that sort of payment or incentive or you know support that they give the District of Columbia, which is still the host of the federal government, that we get in lieu of them coming back to the office? And that's a conversation we haven't yet sort of hammering out what that ask is, but that is something that we're talking with some of the stakeholders about. 
In that vein, there are some thoughts within GSA to sell and privatize some of their buildings, which could bring new real estate into the district's tax rolls. Has DC been involved in potentially facilitating any of this? Yeah, so we actually have uh, been in good contact with GSA. They've been a, a good partner. And what's interesting is, you know, they are continuing to, to lease and to look for office space as if the posture hasn't changed in the office. So the SEC, uh, Securities Exchange Commission, is probably a good example. Right. Signing like a 1.2 million square foot lease in Noma, or even it's probably even North Noma, as it were, you know, and so that's happening. We're it's also, a private deal. Yeah. And we're in, we're in contact with GSA on other agencies that are looking to locate and, and maybe even locate on district owned land. So the, Federal government seems to kind of be moving forward with making sure that the presence is here. And the other thing that the Biden administration, give them credit for, the Trump administration said that agencies can start to locate out of the national capital region. And that we've seen that reversed as well, which helps us. So in terms of the engagement with GSA, we're there with them. They've been really been communicating with us. And we've got a great uh, partner in the deputy administrator, Nina Albert, who actually worked in Demped before she went to LaMada and now on to service right. at GSA. Well, I interviewed the prior, her predecessor, Dan, Dan Matthews, and one of the initiatives they had was to try to reduce the overall federal footprint, which they did about 3 million square feet or so internationally. But in, in D.C., you have in tremendous underutilization of district of federal government owned buildings, primarily in the southern southwest along Independence Avenue. Those buildings are even when the Trump administration was in, they were sometimes less than 50 percent occupied. So it would be interesting to see if you could repatriate those buildings from federal land into, into private hands. Yes. which obviously would increase the tax rolls for the District of Columbia. And of course, I will then segue my thought into what happens if you become the 51st state of the, United, uh, of the, of the U.S. And what does that mean to the district situation well, with the federal government? So then well, there's John, another I hate question to, for I, you. I hate to go back to your last question since you asked that one, because uh, the mayor would kick me in the shin for not going directly to D.C. statehood. But... I will say that uh, there's some other opportunities in addition to what you mentioned. There's still the FBI headquarters. That's still not resolved, right? Yes. Think about yes. the uh, development opportunity that that is at on you know, the corridor between the Capitol and the White House. You know, yeah. we'll have a new flag on a hotel that sits at 11th and Penn, the luxury hotel that sits there now. That's all. And the FBI uh, site would be a tremendous opportunity for a mixed-use development. Agreed. Which, like you, you know, alluded to, to the tax revenue of the district would add, I assume, housing and then also, of course, jobs. So that's a good site. Another site, too, because you mentioned Independence Avenue, but looking at Constitution, the Department of Labor a site for a building that is not utilized as well as it should be. That would be a great site right near the U.S. Capitol. So those are two opportunities that we should definitely keep on the radar. So in terms of 51st state and coming back to that, like I said, because it is a huge priority for the, for the mayor. One, it really actually means a lot for us because one, we're taxpaying Americans. We actually pay more per capita than any uh, state in the country. We are larger than a couple of states and growing. 
And we also know that this is actually a good thing for the region. Uh, think about it when the region comes together and needs something like an investment in metro, an investment in our airports, or an investment in our major transportation hub that Union Station is. But we've got four senators that go and try to help us out uh, and find that funding. Imagine if the region had six senators instead of four. Just think of the type of uh, investments we'd be able to make with our partners in the federal government. Uh, and it's real. I mean, the, the Metro funding, which has an annual federal appropriation, has a sunset. If that were to sunset, that would be really painful for the tr- three jurisdictions, D.C., Maryland, Virginia, to absorb. Uh, so D.C. statehood is important because, one, it's a great job in the American system. But two, because there makes a lot of business sense for the region to have not four senators, but six. Uh, And if you think about all that's going on in the uh, Congress these days and what's happening in the Senate, it could also help break up the logjam that's there because you would have a couple more senators. And that is important to, you know, the progress of the nation. So I think there are naysayers who will point to the Constitution, who will say that uh, this takes a constitutional amendment. It doesn't takes a simple act of Congress because D.C. is following what's called the Tennessee Plan. Every state in the union has established a constitution for the state, has set the boundaries of the state, and then has petitioned Congress. Every single one that's done that has been admitted. So we're hoping that we will soon be the 51st state. It'll be interesting to see. I haven't seen it come up yet on the floor, but we'll see. Um, Yeah, so the House is where it uh, has the most vitality. The Senate is a tougher uh, path. I'll say that for sure. Yep. The D.C. Council has passed legislation regarding zero energy for all properties as a goal by 2033, I think it is, as I recall. This seems unrealistic. (laughs) How is the D.C. government facilitating to achieve this goal? Yeah, so we have set and you know, continue to kind of engage stakeholders on our, our building energy performance standards. It is something that I think we are right to be ambitious about. And I know that our development community has really embraced trying to get to as much of the yes. standard as they can. So I will say that I applaud the industry for stepping up as they have, not just the developers who build the buildings, but also tenants who see it as an amenity. Uh, to be in buildings that uh, have the highest uh, lead standards. So with everything, we set ambitious goals. We see where we are, and it's a good way for us to measure where we are and where we're going. And I think that, you know, if adjustments have to be made, that's understandable as long as we're all making our best effort to get there. And so I know we have a lot of creativity in D.C., and we also have, like I said, a development community that is willing to make uh, a run at it. And we have employers and uh, thus tenants who are looking to uh, see that as, a, as an amenity. So for all those reasons, I think it is obviously something that is on the radar as an area of concern. But I think if we work together, we could really make uh, tremendous progress. Given all of your initiatives, realistically, what accomplished would you look back and consider successes once you left your position? Yeah. So I think really the thing that I really want to make sure that we do is we hit the mayor's housing goal, obviously the 36,000 by 2025, but also that sub goal of 12,000 of those units being affordable. That is something that I think, like I just said about other goals, it's measurable. It 
says where we are and where we have to go, but doing it would also talk about, or would also demonstrate, I should say, the type of city we are, that we set big goals and then we go out to meet them. I think it also will show because there needs to be market demand for us to keep this pipeline of housing going and for investors to still want to invest. And so I think it'll show that uh, we're a city on the rise um, because a lot of folks have been struck during the pandemic by this notion that, that people want to live out in the suburbs and the suburban life and even rural life is the way they want to live. And I actually think that'll be challenged as people do come back to work and to school. We see it in some real estate reports. I was reading something the other day from Jones Lang LaSalle that said that that, that notion that we're all going to live in the suburbs or in the rural areas for more space is really being challenged as we get into 2022 as people come back to the cities. The way we see it is, you know, from June of 2020 to June of 2021 on the rental, we've seen the highest net absorption of apartments in any year uh, in recent history. So all of the, this century. So really what we see is that DC is, is a comeback city. What we like to call it is the district of comebacks. And I think really hitting that housing goal, both the overall goal and the sub goal will just really show how vibrant the city is and how strong it is in terms of, you know, in terms of overcoming this tough challenge that the pandemic has put before us. Are there any other interesting initiatives in the real estate realm that your department's pursuing that my listeners might be in, enjoy hearing about? Yeah, one that um, uh, we haven't talked about yet that really could get folks' attention is we're trying to set up an innovation district. This is something that we're doing in partnership uh, with the Golden Triangle Business Improvement District and George Washington University. And we actually are excited that GW has a new interim president, President Wrighton, who uh, comes to us from St. Louis, where he helped set up and was a big supporter of the Cortex district there, which was their innovation district. So it's almost like he came to DC at the right time. He just started on at the beginning of January. And we're gonna excited to work with him and George Washington University and the Golden Triangle bid to really reimagine what the Western part of the central business district is all about. And I think that some of the shape that this innovation district can take on really relates to and really GovTech. And those two areas are a little bit different, but they're kind of the same. The reason why technology companies should locate in our innovation district is for two reasons, or at least one of two reasons. One, you either want the federal government as a customer, or you want the federal government to stay out of your hair as a regulator. The best way to do that is to be here and be part of the fabric of DC. Some would argue that that's why Amazon came to this region to set up their HQ2 was to actually be part of uh, the fabric of it and to be close to one of their customers in the Pentagon and to be you know close to their regular here. So Look out for more on the innovation district with the Golden Triangle bid. Is there a physical boundary of that or is that within one of the bids or where is that exactly? Yeah, so basically the Golden Triangle bid is the area of the central business district that is west of 16th Street and, you know, stretches out to Foggy Bottom, which is where GW is located. And GW actually, you know, they come to it with an interesting perspective. Their school of business has spun off a number of unicorns and... They aren't, but they've done that, but they're, they haven't kept them all here in DC. And GW really wants to set up an ecosystem where they can spin out tech founders and company founders, but to have them stay in DC to kind of be part of that university ecosystem as well. Mm-hmm. 
talk about your department and how you've managed through the pandemic within the your who you manage there. Yeah, no. So we're a small team, just about a hundred uh, people. We though have managed, you know, one count, and this was before the most recent budget that we had put out within the first year of the pandemic about $155 million of grants, new grants, dollars that we hadn't gotten before. And we did it really operating remotely and without any additional staff. And and not everybody on the team obviously does grants. The other thing that we're really proud of during the pandemic is the mayor kept the construction industry open. It was really important because one, we knew that we were always at some point going to get to the other side of this pandemic. And two, because it represents a tremendous number of jobs in the district. So both on our business development team, which manages that $155 million of grants that I mentioned, uh, and our real estate team in terms of keeping projects uh, moving forward, I think that's what I'm proudest of is that Demphead was kind of a bright spot where people knew that we were going to continue to make progress despite uh, all the challenges of the pandemic. And we've done that's great. If for some reason Mayor Bowser leaves office, would you stay in politics or would you consider another profession? So I've uh, had the opportunity to work with some great principals, a chief among them, Mayor Bowser. And I think after this one, I'm going to hang out my hat, probably do something in the private sector. What that is, is obviously up in the air. And for me, I am really great at doing the work that's in front of me, planning for the work uh, ahead. But one thing I'm really bad at is planning for what's ahead for me. But it all has seemed to work out in the end. Great. Excellent. Please share your priorities among family work and giving back, John. Yeah. So I actually think that the work that we get to do every day is just constantly us giving back. So for me, you know, the reason I picked public service and have drawn back to it, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, but is really about the impact that you have on people's lives. So I didn't mention it yet, but one of the things I'm really proud of when I was chief of staff was working with the mayor on the fight for 15 and raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Really important that we did that. And it was an initiative that she said, you know, we have great legislative folks and great policy folks. And she said to me, take it and and run with it and let's get this passed. That's one example of uh, where I dealt with the business community in uh, my work as chief of staff as well. So for me, this opportunity, and that will impact so many lives uh, because of it, we've actually already, um, Cross the threshold, and it's actually a little bit higher. It's about fifteen seventy an hour now. But for me, that was important because it made the mayor a leader in the nation on on the fight for fifteen. But it also will have an impact on lives. So I put everything I can into my work. I have a great family who does not live in town, so that keeps me free to uh, do what I have to do. When I say family, I mean my. Uh, nieces and nephews are the ones that I get to either go visit in New Jersey uh, or they come visit me. And I don't know that they quite have a sense of what I do. They get to go to a bunch of nationals games and and things like the monster truck show or the car show with their uncle uh, who gets to walk them around and uh, introduce them to some cool folks. That's the, the, you know, the, the best thing I get out of it is is getting a chance to spoil my family a little bit with uh, some experiences like that. I remember actually, I told my nephew, who at the time was probably like 
six years old, I told them that we were going to go to my office and I took him over to the armory where we had this dinosaur display set up. And oh, so he great. thinks I work in the armory with the dinosaurs. <laughs> He's now nine and still thinks that's the case. So that's the way I kind of involve my family and my work, getting to see some of the cool stuff that I get to do. But for me, this work is all about giving back and the impact that we have on our neighbors' lives. So what would you tell your 25-year-old self today, John? Oh, man, man. Well, I think I knew this at 25 as well, is that, you know, you don't really judge work by what you get out of it, but you should really judge work by what you put into it. And I think that if you really pour yourself into uh, the work and you really believe in who you're working for and with, then you will have no, you know, you will no doubt uh, be successful. I think I told you I learned that work ethic from my parents, my dad being an educator who was involved in politics, my mom who became an educator later in life and went on to graduate college with my youngest sibling, putting herself through college while she was working and raising us in order to make sure she could be That's a full-time great. teacher. So work ethic was something that I learned at home from both of my parents. And it's something that a 25-year-old John knew. And I think that now I know that how rewarding it can be to, you know, to really implement that work ethic, utilize it. And so I think that that is something that my parents can be proud of. And so that uh, makes 25-year-old John and now 42-year-old John satisfied with what I've done. Well, here's my last question, John. If you could place a billboard entering the, into the District of Columbia on every major arterial, arterial road, what would it say? I mean, that's a, if if you've been at any of my team meetings, you would know that that's an easy one. And it would simply say that DC is open. The reason why it's so important is just because we we know that we're going to come back. We know that we're going to overcome this pandemic and be stronger than ever before. But to do that, we've got to be open. And so DC is open. And hopefully that means that our college students come back, our workers come back to the office, and that we get back to that growth uh, that we were on before, growth trajectory that we were on before the pandemic. John, thank you very much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. That was fun. uh, I appreciate the conversation. So we just listened to John Felchicchio, Deputy Mayor for Economic Development of the D.C. government. And as I normally do for the for the podcast. I'm bringing on my colleague, Colin Madden. Welcome, Colin. Thank you for joining me after a one episode hiatus. Thank you for coming on this time. Yeah. And congratulations uh, on your new, your new baby girl, by the way. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Sorry. I had to miss the last podcast. Just trying to get the time management back on track when, when you're responsible for a new baby. So appreciate that. And, um, yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for having me on again. I thought this uh, this podcast was interesting. It's uh, I think one of your first political ones that I've been involved with, at least. So it's it's good for me to to hear it and get a better understanding about how DC is kind of thinking about getting people back to the city, back to the office, get retail up back and running. And I enjoyed hearing John talk about that. And it does sound like he's hyper focused on. I'm bringing DC back. It sounds like they have open channels to the federal government. They have funding in place to to help you know boost up some of these retailers returning. So, what's your take on all that? Did you think it was more more than you expected they were doing, or or, or what? I think they're 
you know, they're trying to figure it out. This they did an REF RFEI for downtown mm. tenants, the landlords in the CBD mm. to figure out what they need to do to encourage people to come back to the office and uh, bring retailers back. And whether they do tax abatements or, you know, maybe re- help with some regulations or what whatever they have to do to try to inst- instill uh, confidence in businesses coming back into the city. It's, it's, it's going to be important. And the other thing he talked about was the federal government. And I said, so what are you working with the GSA to try to encourage them to get back in town? And, you know, the president apparently noted, made a comment, whether it was right before our, my interview with John or, or right afterward, but, you know, it is encouraging that GSA is now in being encouraged to come back now that the mask mandate is just dropped in the city. So mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see what happens. And I hope that they can encourage more and more people to get involved. It'll be interesting also to see what ideas are generated from that RAF, RFEI. I know you're involved with one of the major landlords downtown, Colin. It, it, has your firm responded to that? Or are you looking at it? Or are you aware of what's going on there? I haven't been directly involved, but I think we're just more monitoring than anything. But yes, yeah, it's, it's it's necessary. I think getting ideas, getting people to the table, kind of working collaboratively with the government is probably the best step forward because there is going to be kind of a give and take on both sides, whether it be tax payments or investing somewhere you may, may have otherwise not have done in the past. So I think both sides of the table are, are equally trying to figure it out, but I think it needs to be done. We need to figure out how to get DC revitalized, get back to the office, get retail back up and running. And, you know, I think, I think COVID had drastic effects on the city, obviously, but it also kind of, in my opinion, made cities compete more directly with each other. I think a lot of people had the ability to work remote and move. And now it's, 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 it's almost opened up competition between cities to a level we haven't seen before. Do you agree with that take or do you think DC is kind of isolated from that type of comp- competition? Because obviously when you, you zoom out and look at California, you saw a great, great amount of people moving to Austin, to Miami, to the East Coast. And I, th- I think I've seen like a heat map of how many people actually moved out of California. I haven't seen one for DC, but seeing that just makes it me realize that people are more remote than I previously thought. So how do you A, attract those people who are willing to move and B, make sure that your your current citizens aren't going to Well, what's you know offsetting that thought process a little bit, mm-hmm. the encouraging signs in 2021 of, of the apartment absorption mm-hmm. in the district, in the district as well as near in suburbs tells me that. People just haven't left and not coming back. I, I get the sense that people are cooped up and want to get back into life again. Mm-hmm. And so the leading edge is the residential absorption, I think. What hasn't followed yet is the re- is the commercial absorption. And the retail, I was with Gary Rappaport last night, who is one of my podcast guests, and, and we toured one of his properties. And he said 2021 was the best retail snapback he's ever seen in his career of a real down year. So 21, more than offset 2020's downturn, whereas he was very pessimistic in, you know, in 2020. 2021, he's extremely bullish about the recovery, which, and that's not just 
you know, in the district, that's area wide, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in Northern Virginia. Mm-hmm. But, but DC, we were at, looked at Skyland last night, which I know is a project that John has a special and the mayor has a special feeling about. And it's, it's booming. They just opened a not brand new Starbucks. There's a Lidl under construction. There's uh, all the retail space. He's about 60% leased on the retail. The apartments are leasing up at 20 a month. In an in Ward Seven uh, of DC, which is you know historically, and Ward Seven and Ward Eight have been historically the most poverty-stricken areas of the city, and it's economic development is happening, so it's a yeah. good thing. And I walk I, before that tour, I walked, I took a drive over to uh, Good Hope Marketplace, which is across the street on Alabama Avenue, and. That every retail space is full, is occupied, no vacancy. The parking lot was full. Moving around the center was challenging because it was so busy. This was early to mid-afternoon. It's very encouraging. It tells me that retail is certainly scarce in that part of the city. So it, they need more. Yeah. So that's that's an encouraging sign. Yeah, in my opinion, it feels like CBD is still lagging a little bit, but I was down on L Street the other day and it's been, it was the busiest I've seen in the past, you know, two years. So anecdotally, it felt like things are starting to thaw out. People are coming back, the city is coming back to life. So I'm optimistic that, you know, citywide, we're, we're going to see the bounce back that, that you said Gary has seen um, in his portfolio. So. John talked about walkable cities in DC. What are yes. your thoughts on that? You see it around the around the world more frequently than in America, but I think COVID allowed certain cities and certain streets to experiment with walkable and outdoor dining more so than they probably would have in the past. Do you see this staying or expanding within DC? I think it'll expand because uh, we need more placemaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only way you're going to track tenants and uh, people back to, to spaces is to have a reason to go. And one of the reasons to go is to be outside and dine as long as the weather's appropriate. And people have gotten used to it now during the pandemic. So I think people will encourage that. So it wouldn't surprise me to see street closures, more street closures or partial street closures, not only in the district, but certainly in Montgomery and Fairfax and all those areas around the region mm-hmm. to encourage more outdoor dining and entertainment venues of some sort to attract, attract people because, you know, but then again, it'll be interesting to see the rebound out of the household for people that are, you know, especially your generation. Young mm-hmm. people want to get out and about. Us older guys don't necessarily have to get out as, about as much, but we certainly <laughs> have some yeah. of that. And, you know, but the younger generation, I just can't. I know my children are eager to get out and travel and do things. Mm-hmm. Uh, one con- couple of constraining factors immediately now is the inflation, uh, the rapid increase in, in oil prices due to the war and Ukraine mm-hmm. uh, and and just worldwide supply issues and inflation in general. 
So hopefully that doesn't choke off, you know, the, the rebound from the pandemic. But I like to think we'll work our way through it. So, you know, what impact that has to DC specifically, I can't say. But, you know, I've been in Noma recently and there's just tremendous construction activity there. I, I there must be eight crates, seven or eight cranes on the skyline over there. That mm-hmm. around the ballpark, there's still quite a bit of that construction activity. So, you know, it hasn't slowed down the, you know, the pandemic hasn't stopped construction. The question is, you know, an absorption is back up, as I said, in the residential space. And apparently in retail, Gary says doing well. So those could be leading edge signs for the office market, I hope. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, maybe that'll rebound as well, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah, to me, this cycle out, out coming out of Omicron, it feels like people are returning back to the office quicker than they were, you know, after the vaccine and then also after Delta. And I keep the, the data in our portfolio and we were trending like 50% occupied in our buildings before Omicron. Then we had a pretty large dip because of that. And then February was right back up to where we were before Omicron. So like I'm seeing the numbers of people returning to the office I think our company's back to the office. You're seeing the GSA stating that they want to go back. Even the tech world, I think Google released last week that met in March or April 2nd, I think. They they want three three days a week in office at all of their offices, including Silicon Valley. So those are some data points. I don't know if it's large enough for a sample size, but it just feels to me that people are, are returning across the board, tech, government, what, what have you. And then anecdotally, again, when you're in the CBD, you see a lot of people walking around. And so to me, optimistically, it feels like we're, we're getting out of this, getting back to the office um, and then spending time in the city. And I think John said that each person going to the city is $18, did he say? Of money spent while while in, so that's a that's a ton of money cha- changing hands within the city on a day to day basis when you when you start getting the workforce back in. So, well, the other, the other yeah yeah the other piece is the is the tourist piece, mm-hmm. which I think and we didn't get into that as much detail, but you know you've got to get the Smithsonian. I guess they're back, but mm-hmm. you need to get some incentives to come back, and hotels is another piece. Mm-hmm. Big part of their tax revenue in the city is hotel tax, the tourism business industry. That that's a big, that's a big, you know, income yeah. producer. And then the other thing is reassessments of of, of buildings, uh, uh-huh. office buildings downtown. I mean, if you're an owner and you're not getting tenants back and your rents aren't going up very fast, you're going to sit down and look very hard at your real estate taxes. So, you know, with this RFEI, the city's opened the door to negotiate, but it comes to the point where they're going to have to cut services if they can't get the revenues they need to, mm-hmm. to operate. So there's going to be a lot of counter-cyclical forces that are going to go on, I think, and it'll be interesting to see how they manage through it. Yeah. But I think there's going to be a lagging tax issue for the city as far as revenue. There'll be some subsidy issues. Yeah, you mentioned uh, getting federally owned buildings into private hands to increase the yes. tax base. Yes. Have you seen Have you seen that occur in the past? How, how does that process work? If you're familiar. Well, like, I haven't. How, seen how, how do you foresee it looking? Or? Well, I 
you know, I, last year I interviewed Dan Matthews, who was the, the, at that time the head of GSA during the Trump administration. And, and Dan said that if they were to abandon, if the federal government would have to work some kind of a deal with the city, and they, in an essence, you know, a private development, they sell a building to a private mm-hmm. developer, it becomes, it comes onto the tax rolls. And I said, you know, one way to improve your tax base and also to liven up the city and parts of the city that might need it, like parts of Southwest off Independence Avenue and there is to tear down on these old Hulk buildings <laughs> and <laughs> redevelop the sites into something more lively and engaging uh, yeah. and, and income producing, not only for the city, but for private owners of property. And, you know, when you have vacant office buildings that are over a million square feet, people aren't using them. I mean, what good is that for anybody? It's a it's an anchor to the government, the federal government. There's no revenue to the city because there's nobody using anything around it. I mean, to me, it's it's found money to do that. And 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 it's 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 actually beneficial to the federal government. The problem is bureaucracy and politics. because you know, what priority is that to, you know, people from outside the District of Columbia to go through all the machinations it's going to take to transfer land and buildings into the private sector? Mm -hmm. To me, it would be an immediate boon to the city, to the private sector, and a a big boon to the federal government as far as... lowering costs of operations of the the, Mm -hmm. the city. It's Mm -hmm. a triple win. It's probably, you know, a pebble in a a hailstorm, but it's something, you know, you can put one or two people on it. If you could get the right, you know, set of government people involved, you could probably save billions to the federal government as well as increase billions to the city as well as the private sector. Mm -hmm. So I just, you know, a couple things. But it's yeah, it's easier said than done. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> sure. Yeah, you, you mentioned the FBI building on Pennsylvania Avenue. Actually, John brought that up. Yeah, John brought it up. Has, has that been? Has there been any analysis of that trading hands into the private sector? Do you know? Of, or well, was that just one one idea he had that he brought up? You know, it's something that came back onto the table after the you know Biden was elected. But, you know, I, I've since spoken to Dan Matthews because he's a client now of mine. I've helped him kind of think through. He's now with WeWork. Mm-hmm. He was locked out from any conversations with GSA and his contract it's after he left. But just for a year, and now he has the opportunity. And he's going to talk to Nina Albert, who now runs GSA. And I know John mentioned her name. He's just, he doesn't know. And I don't really have an in with Nina myself. I probably could interview her for the podcast and find out what they're thinking about, but nothing has come out that I've seen publicly about the, the FBI. You know, there was a major process during the uh, Obama administration for that. Yeah. And I mean, they went down to the final three sites. It was negotiated. You know, it looked like it was going to be going to Greenbelt. From what I'd heard, we didn't know exactly who the developer was going to be. I think they were going to have a separate RFP for who the developer was and the location. It was coming close. And then suddenly, boom, 
you know, yeah. when Trump was elected, that changed everything. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It'll it'll be interesting. I think that's only one of probably seven or eight buildings in the city that could be repatriated to the private sector, frankly. Yeah. But that's the best location. The Trump Hotel, which mm-hmm. I think they're trying <clears throat> to change the name of pretty soon, as soon as he his lease is assigned. I mean, that facility will go. Now that will stay in federal land ownership, I believe, but you know, that was a privatized deal. There was the tariff building, which is now a the Monaco hotel. That was a privatized deal. So there are some examples of it, mostly in the hospitality sector. I haven't heard of many office buildings transferring because not many people want to take over a federal office building. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not one that uh, is easy to convert. Although the DOT former headquarters building was converted into a private sector. I mean, it was owned by the private sector. It was a net lease building. But if you walked that building before they moved, it was like being in a federal building. Yeah. Anyway. And the, there are several developers in town that are used to building federal facilities, JBG, Blake. They understand the specs that the federal government has, and they also understand the private sector. So there are several developers in town that could take some of these old hulking barracks and, and turn them into something special. What uh, JBG did with L'Enfant Plaza, I mean, there are several examples around the region. So there's opportunities. Mm-hmm. And... You know, uh, if the district is 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 has open minded enough, and they have enough, I mean, they could go to Eleanor Holmes North and say, Eleanor, go go get a team up and see if we can do a private transfer of some of these buildings. And that'll add to the tax rolls. It gets the money, it gets the private sector involved in redeveloping parts of the city that I think could be enlivened mm-hmm. between the CBD and the wharf. So that whole area there, basically around the mall, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's tourists, tourist haven, but you could actually get it, you know, more business oriented if you could enliven Independence Avenue into more than just a tourist area. So just, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm not a city planner, but, <laughs> but I, yeah, I just that, know I, that it would be there. Yeah, exactly. You guys talked about D.C. statehood. Did you want to touch on that at all or? I, uh, well, it's I it's a political foot it. it's a political football. You know, my high level view of that. I mean, I brought it up because I I knew it was very interesting to him, and he wanted to tout it. But you know, the way Congress is right now, and the, and what it takes to become a state, I just think it's high taller than Mount Everest for them to climb. To be honest with you, yeah, at least at, at, in the immediate future. So I don't see it. Yeah. In terms of like second order of thinking, let's say that it did become a state. What do you think the, uh, you know, the effects of that would be on the area, on business, on real estate in general? Well, I think, I, I think it would be a, it would be a boon to the city mm-hmm. for a lot of reasons. One is it would give them, you know, a, a seat at the table in Senate. It would give them you know, a real representative in the House of Representatives. It would give the city its own budget. It then could technically charge the federal government for things that they do, that they basically subsidize. 
it would force um, it would force the city into into fiscal discipline that they've never had before. Although the financial control board was here at one point because we were uh, remiss, I've not studied the fiscal needs of the city relative to the federal government subsidy. And I don't quite understand the mechanics between the federal government and the Washington, D.C. government as far as how they cap capital flows. But it will become more traditional as for from a state government standpoint. Uh, again, I don't understand the government. It's not just finance, but also personnel issues. Yeah. It, you know, the D.C. police are basically kind of the protectors of politicians traveling around the city, foreign dignitaries coming in. You know, it, the relationship here is unique in, in the country. There's nothing quite like the relationship between the district government, the federal government, and the area around it. And we have, I don't know how many different police forces we have in Washington. So we have, we have the, the, the Secret Service. We have the Metropolitan Police. We have the Congressional Police Force. I think the White House, I guess the Secret Service manages that. But And then we have the National Guard. We have the, the military. I mean, we have a lot of <laughs> uniformed people in the Washington area. How that would all, that mix would change with with the state, with D.C. becoming a state, I don't know. It yeah. may not all change at all. Maybe I'm over, you know, over-dramatizing it. But it'll be interesting. It would be interesting to see what impact it would have from an economic standpoint. It's hard to say. The tax base has certainly improved over the last 30, 25 years in Washington. The income levels are higher. The demographics are better. It's, well, I shouldn't say better. They're just, you know, stronger economically. Mm -hmm. And so there's, it's, you know, there's an opportunity, but I don't, I don't see it because of the political issue yeah. Yeah, right now. Be interesting to see it play out, but yeah, I kind of agree that won't hold my breath. Yeah, yeah. Anything else, Colin? No, those are most of the points I wanted to catch up on. Anything from you? No, I. John is an interesting guy. He grew up up in New Jersey, and Dad was a political guy, political person, and that really inspired him. And he got involved in campaigns early as a kid and really get into it. And, uh, uh, but, I, but I think he's gotten into the, into the administrative piece in a big way and seems mm -hmm. enthusiastic. He's a cheerleader, certainly. He, he loves the city now, gotten involved, and you know, he's learned a lot about how to interact with the, with the city. So it'll be interesting to see what, how that happens. Uh, if the mayor gets reelected, whether he stays, what role he plays going forward, it's hard to say. I think he'll probably get back into campaigning if he is no longer in office, because that seems to be in his blood. So, mm -hmm. but he does have an interest in real estate. He's not a real estate guy, but he's looking to to help. He has an open mind, it seems to me, as to yeah. trying to help help the city come back on get back on its feet. So, which is a good thing. Yeah, I agree. Um, and it, it sounds like that's a big focus, getting people back to work. So it's great to hear that and wish him the best because I think, uh, you know, we all need, we need that, that drive to get people back in. So no question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So listeners, thank you for listening uh, to another episode here. I've got uh, a couple of more lined up now. We have a talk with uh, <clears throat> 
Yolanda Cole coming up, who's the principal of, of Hickok Cole for my next episode. So I hope you enjoy that. And thank you for listening. And thank you, Colin, for joining me again. Thank you.